This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. After a tragedy like the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, many of us wonder why or how something like this could happen again. These questions reignite conversations around gun control legislation and the Second Amendment. It also brings up a common talking point among some lawmakers and leaders. The root of a lot of these issues is mental health. And, you know, this has been evident for for a long time in this country. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period. Those were the voices of Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who represents Uvalde, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott. We've heard similar sentiments from Democrats in the past. So is mental health a root cause of mass shootings in the U.S.? And how much of the nation's gun violence problem rests on our mental health care system? Joining us now to weigh in is Lori Post. She is director of the Bueller Center for Health Policy and Economics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Hi, Lori. Welcome to Reset. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Eric Madfis, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Hi, Eric. Great to have you on. Hi. Thanks very much for having me. Lori, you've studied mass shootings dating back to the 60s. Um, That's correct. How do you define a mass shooting? Um, I define a mass shooting as four or more lethal or four or more deaths per um, public mass shooting. So there are other types of mass shootings like family annihilators that kill their families or felony mass shootings where there's people that are shot and killed in the course of committing another felony. But um, public mass shootings that I study, I define as where the objective is to kill as many people as possible and it's in a public place. So I'm going to ask you the question I posed at the top. Is mental health really driving mass shootings in this country? No, not at all. Um, I, I think that the, the thing that we have to clarify is, is like, um, are there conditions that, that psychiatrists or psychologists can identify? And there are, and that would be antipersonality disorders, such as being a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissist, um, those types of conditions. However, that's not somebody who's mentally ill, not somebody who can be held um, in a facility and these type of people know exactly what's going to happen when they pull the trigger, when they use guns, when they use bullets. They know that it's going to result in the killing of humans. And they don't feel bad about it. They have no empathy. Mm. So just because they're evil doesn't mean that you can hold them. You can only hold people for evil acts. Eric, weigh in here. How related is America's mental health crisis to the country's gun yeah, violence so- problem? So I think, unfortunately, we, we often sort of pivot to mental health in simplistic ways rather than sort of dealing with what the, sort of the ramifications of that and what that means. So, for example, if we talk about what people often think about as, as sort of someone having a mental health issue, people think of someone who's, you know, delusional, schizophrenic, sort of out of touch with reality. And there have been mass shootings who have had um, sort of uh, those conditions and have, have experienced that. But that is the sort of really small minority. In contrast, what you do see, I mean, there are a number of, um, if you talk about the vast majority of, of mass shooters, they do sometimes have, you know, depression and suicidal ideation. That's the kind of mental health conditions that you're talking about that are actually quite common around mass shooters and school shooters. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not necessarily as much of a part of the conversation as it should be. So, Eric, what about the um, assumption, uh, and there are several assumptions that, that come up after a mass shooting. Let's be clear about that. But I want to zone in on the uh, assumption that mental illness can predict gun violence or crime? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's problematic. I mean, certainly, I think that further, you know, further stigmatizes mental health issues and 
you know, people are, are much more likely to be, um, you know, victim of, of violence than, than to be a perpetrator of violence if they have um, some kind of mental health issue. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a problematic frame, I'd say, in general, though I, I do think there are things that we could do to certainly improve mental health care in the country that would also certainly, um, I think, help um, these outcomes, too. What happens, Lori, when we do assume that a mass shooter has a diagnosed mental illness? You, you talked a moment ago about the difference, you know, between someone who really does have a mental illness and like a psychopath, for instance. So your question is what? Sorry. What what happens when we assume that they do have a diagnosed mental illness? Here's the problem is that um, in the majority of cases where you see data are collected, they're taking information from family members or the media collects information or the police, whatever, um, takes uh, does interviews with the family or friends. And to those people, people with empathy, they don't understand how someone could have no empathy or how somebody could kill children without reason. And so they attribute it to mental health. And so a lot of times that gets recorded with mass shootings is often in the media, they'll say, well, the brother said he always had mental health issues, which is not the same thing as somebody who has ongoing um, antisocial personality disorder who gets into conflict, who's full of anger, hate, does scary things like um, harms animals, harms children, um, batters a wife, um, gets into fights with, you know, coworkers, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So what and if we focus too much on the mental health, it's not that we shouldn't treat mental health, but then we're 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 not talking about real solutions that would actually do something. And and you know something simple like some gun policy that would solve mass shootings is to um, ban assault rifles with large capacity magazines. There's a ton of studies that show it works, and also to some extent, um, red flag orders or also background checks um, at a national level, not at a state level. Yeah. But, Anyway, so I don't like to see people switch the focus from um, something that we can take action, um, policies we know are efficacious that have been scientifically demonstrated to be effective from multiple researchers looking at every possible angle. So, and, and I don't like to switch the focus to mental health, with the exception is you have a whole bunch of people who are ruined for life. You have victim survivors. You have the family members. These people aren't going to recover without... Um, significant trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. You know, Lori, some people might point to social alienation yeah. or uh, a tendency for violence as warning signs of mental illness. I want to share something with you. In, in recent months, I've actually overheard my, my children. I have two teenagers. Uh-huh. I've heard them having conversations about this kind of stuff, right? And I've had to intervene at times because um, there's this real fear uh, that I'm learning uh, among some kids that the kid at school who's been socially isolated or they're fighting a lot or maybe they're absent quite frequently, we need to keep an eye on them. They need to be watched because they might one day do something really bad at yeah. school. So- I, here's the thing is it's not a surprise when these people show up and, and commit a massacre. Um, they, they, have, they have all kinds of, you know, warnings. And I think, like, making people aware, the general public aware of, like, what are some warnings on very antisocial personality, like torturing a pet something like that, or somebody who's in conflict all the time, or a prolific history of domestic violence, restraining orders, stalking orders. Any suggestions on how to responsibly think about that or even talk to children about having concerns like this? 
I think it's great. Like encourage them to talk about it. Um, and I would say follow up with it too. Um, well, we're concerned about this person and we don't want, of course, then, you know, turn around where people are starting to discriminate against others who, you know, might have, um, might be a sexual or gender minority or um, belong to, a, you know, a different racial group, an ethnic group, a religious group, something like that. We want to um, find people really with alarming or concerning behavior. Right. But there's um there's a researcher from Penn, uh, along with a journalist who did a study on on mass shooters, and they're just not finding them without a history of this antisocial personality um, behavior. Eric, ultimately, th- does focusing on mental health distract us from actually addressing gun violence? Um, I do think it often is is a deliberate pivot away from talking about sort of gun issues and gun access and gun culture that we have in this country. I do think it's a, and I think that's revealed by the fact that, that the people who talk about mental health as a solution never actually um, propose any mental health solutions to anything. So I think yeah. uh, it often is used that way. So yeah. how, do, how do we talk about the two issues carefully and thoughtfully? Um, I think there's sophisticated ways to talk about these things that, that are sort of, if you just, if you look at the data, if you sort of, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of information that we have now, certainly over the last 20 years, the research on mass shootings and school shootings has been sort of exponential, and I think we know a lot more. And I think that, that you can engage. I do think you can have a conversation, a sort of a, a nuanced one about mental health and the, the role that it plays um, and the role that it doesn't play, you're right, in a way that isn't stigmatizing to a broad swath of the population, but still, you know, broadly deals with, you know, tries, tries to prevent bullying in schools, tries to prevent, um, you know, depression and issues of, of suicidal ideation. I mean, there's, there's things that you can do that are helpful broadly for the community, for everyone, that will, I think, be helpful, that, that it doesn't sort of stigmatize particular people and, and doesn't, you know, um, you know, single out particular kids, single out particular, um, you know, there, there is, you know, a concern if you're, if you're single out kids and, and calling them school shooters and things like that and, and, and sort of targeting them for mm-hmm. disproportionate, like, punishment or, or, or attention when, when, you know, we have, we have a, a long history of, of targeting kids in schools for, for just, you know, perfectly harmless behavior, like, oh, we, we say it has to do with violent video games, it has to do with the way they dress, it has to do with, you know, trench coats, all these sort of really broad, vague things that actually are not correlated with any kind of violence um, that are problematic. In contrast to, I think we know a lot more about, for example, threat assessment as opposed to more broader, you know, risk-focused concerns about profiles and, and warning signs that are quite vague. We yeah. know a lot more in, in sort of uh, you know, rigorous um, empirical evaluations of threat assessments, that it really is about how detailed the threat is, how actionable the, the, the threat is, how, how developed the plan is. Did you, you know, target a particular person at a particular time? Did you make specific threats to people? We know a lot more about sort of the kind of threats, the kind of things that are, that are uh, concerning targeted behavior than, than we used to know. And, and those are the kind of things I think we need to take action on and that a lot of, a lot of um, schools are doing now, actually, that are yeah. much more sophisticated and just broadly, you know, saying someone has, has um, this, this general trait that is concerning. So, yeah, violent video games, you bring up a, a good point. They're often cited as a potential cause for a mass shooter's actions. You're saying yeah, there, not necessarily there's so. There's no data on that. There's no data confirming that yeah. whatsoever. And in fact, I mean, I think, you know, large sort of research bodies, you know, have, have found that that's just, just not, not a accurate way to sort of depict the, the, yeah. the research on this. There really is no relationship between um, violent video games and, and, and violent behavior sort of broadly, let alone in uh, school shootings or mass shootings. Lori? I, I would, yeah, I would just say this. I totally agree. Is that we put that one to bed about 25 years ago where they looked for evidence of um, violent video games. Um, it, they're just available and kids use them. It might be like throwing gasoline on a fire, but there's yeah. an absolute 
no causal mechanism there. Well, here's another connection. Yeah. I want to ask you about another thing here. Data show most mass shootings are carried out by men. We had a, a listener call last week and raised this very point on the air. What's the connection here between this kind of violent crime and masculinity? Well, that's just it. Is how do you feel? How do you feel masculine? And it's like um, for some men, it involves like mowing down unarmed people, but they want to make it safe where they have the, where they're going to be the winners there, where they're going to you know be able to kill people. I mean, so that's why you go after unarmed people. Um, but basically, that's just it. And it, it's always the only time in, since 1966 I've seen a, a couple of cases where women were involved, but it was a man behind them. And then there is one example of a woman um, who, who did shoot four people and killed four people. Yeah. Eric, can you weigh in on that? Yeah, so it's true that there have been a few instances of female um, mass shooters, but and, and a few uh, female school shooters. But um, broadly speaking, uh, you know, it is really a, a masculine crime. Broadly, you know, depending on how you measure, it's 94 to 98 percent of mass shootings committed by by boys and men. And I think that's for a number of reasons. It's part that we do sort of in many ways uh, associate violence with with masculinity, and it's a way for often, um, you know, these are. Uh, often guys who have been, um, you know, been, been bullied, emasculated at, at work or in school or, um, you know, have been either picked on or ignored or have not been popular, have not, like, you know, been financially successful for talking about, like, um, older ma- mass shooters. The mm-hmm. people who have had a number of, of sort of slights in terms of, of their perceived masculinity, their perceived, you know, toughness or power or sort of, um, you know, role in the world, and it, and it often serves as a recourse, this sort of last catastrophic act you can commit where you sort of it's a, it's a show of force it's a show of power it's a show of sort of macho toughness yeah. and it, it lets the world think that you're that, that, that you're poor powerful and then you matter and so it is a way to assert masculinity for for in in, in, in really a, in a lot of these cases for sure you've reached you've researched eric and written books on school violence prevention so what can we learn from school shootings and bombings that were prevented yeah um, so I, I, it's true. I've gone to a lot of um, schools where there has been an, an averted incident, where there was a plot or a plan to shoot up or, or bomb the school that, that, that didn't happen. And really, what it is is it's um, you know it's, it's in the vast majority of these cases, um, there's what um, the Secret Service calls leakage, where someone tells other people um, about their plan. They they either try to um, you know uh, recruit other people, or they threaten other people, or they warn friends and say, hey, don't come to school you know, next Tuesday because something's going to happen. So that happens in, in the vast majority of cases. And there's a lot we can do to, um, you know, make sure that when kids come, when the kids are exposed to that kind of leakers are exposed to those threats, that they come forward. And part of that is, you know, having a positive school environment, mm-hmm. having an environment where it's not about zero tolerance and kids feel like they're going to get in trouble if they come forward and tell people, but having an environment where kids trust the people in the building, trust the, um, you know, trust their, their teachers or their principals or people in the building that they feel like if they come forward, they'll be, you know, that they'll be treated fairly. Um, and there's a lot of relationship with, with you know, feeling like that, that, that the school is equitable, that the school, um, you know, doesn't have disciplinary policies that are unfair or, or harsh towards mm-hmm. um, racial minorities and things like that. And that all these kind of things tend to, to breed a positive school environment where it's much more likely for, for kids to come forward. And that, that's really, I think, quite crucial. And one of the things that you can do is actually sort of restorative school practices where you don't just punish kids for things where you actually try to resolve problems, deal with bullying issues, deal with other kinds of things, and, 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 and actually um, address um, the harms that have happened between, um, between kids and really try to address those things that, that make people uh, more likely to come forward and actually uh, avert these types of, of situations. Yeah. 
Uh, Laurie, in your research, you found that a, a federal assault weapon ban from 1994 to 2004 was highly effective in reducing public mass shootings. Can you tell yes. us more? Yeah. So basically, we have this natural experiment where the federal government passed the federal assault weapons ban that also included a ban on large capacity magazines. It was national. Um, it didn't even have a buyback program to, or to remove our policy to remove um, existing assault rifles from the community. Um, and, it re- and it resulted uh, in a, a very different trajectory during this 10 years. And then the, the policy sunsetted in 2004. And we can see that if it had stayed on track to where it was, we would have averted 30 mass shootings between um, 2004 and 1999 that would have saved more than 400 lives and about 1,200 um, people from being injured by a gun in a mass shooting. So anyway, I just want to say this. So I use one particular method. I have one definition. I use stats um, unique to me. But there are several other researchers have looked at this several different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and there's overwhelming evidence that the bans work. And um, and we can't do them at a state level because basically you can hop in your car, drive anywhere, and go buy guns someplace else because we, you know, we live so close our states, we can just go to another state and pick up assault rifle, rifles there. Mm-hmm. So. A federal ban, it's, it has to be national for any policy. We're only as good as the weakest link. When we think of mental health policies and, and, and resources, do you have any solutions that you think we can find within our mental health care system to address gun violence in this country, Eric? Um, any mental health solutions? I mean, I, I do think that uh, you have a lot of barriers for mental health, not only cost, but also sort of, you know, overly complicated bureaucratic systems that are a problem. I mean, not, not just for, you know, people who are troubled, but kind of everyone to access. Mental health care is, is quite difficult for everyone to access broadly in this country. So I think if we have more broad-based universal systems, that, that, would, that would be helpful across the board um, to, to, for everyone to access these things so that they're less stigmatized. And so there's less bureaucracy and trouble for, I mean, you know, if someone wants to come um, say that they're having a, a mental health crisis, you know, we really need to, to you know, break through the barriers to let people get that access. And there's just too many barriers in the system at the moment. That's yeah. Eric Madfis, an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and Northwestern medicine expert, Lori Post. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.